In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. First of all, can I say a big thank you for your welcome here today. It really is great to be here. A great privilege, a great honor. Thank you. And greetings to you from St. Albans Cathedral in England. Now, we're keeping the Feast of St. Luke today. Luke, I think you could truly say, is the most Anglican of the four evangelists. Austin Farrer, a new, famous New Testament theologian of the 50s, once called Luke the gentleman evangelist. He was highly educated. Luke writes the best Greek in the New Testament and, of course, was probably a medical doctor. St. Paul refers to Luke as the beloved physician in the epistle to the Colossians. And when Luke tells, for example, the story of Jesus healing the woman with a hemorrhage, it's noticeable that he uses rather more technical vocabulary than Mark or Matthew do to describe her illness. Even more significantly, whereas Mark and Matthew mention that that poor woman with a hemorrhage had used up all her money on loads of useless doctors, Luke rather noticeably leaves that bit out. (laughs) Very strong evidence, I'd say, that he was a doctor himself. So Luke was a well-educated, cultured, cosmopolitan man of the Roman Empire. He wrote his gospel and the sequel, the book of Acts, for Theophilus, a high-up Roman official. And although Luke addresses Theophilus very politely as Cratiste Theophile, your excellency Theophilus, Luke is also clearly writing as a friend of his. So Luke was an establishment man, literally. He admires Rome. And one of the main reasons Luke wrote was to try and get the church established as a friend of the Roman Empire and not as a threat to it. So, all through the Gospel and all through the book of Acts, Luke bends over backwards to show the Roman Empire in the most positive light possible. Pilate, the Roman governor, who clearly was responsible for Jesus' death, is almost completely whitewashed, and the blame is shifted squarely to the Jews. When Jesus dies, it's the Roman centurion who declares that he was innocent. And all through the book of Acts, Luke shows the Roman legal and political system acting almost always with meticulous fairness, especially after Paul declares that he is a Roman citizen. By the time that Luke was writing, probably around 90 AD, the expectation that Jesus was coming back soon had faded, and the church was adjusting itself to being an institution in the world. The church had to adapt itself to political and social realities, 
And you can see signs of that adaptation all through Luke's writings. For example, you remember according to all three synoptic gospels, when Jesus first sends the disciples out, he tells them, don't take a purse, nor a bag, nor sandals. In other words, don't rely on human support. The disciples are to be radically poor, radically dependent on God. But at the end of Luke's gospel, Luke changes the orders. In Luke's version of the Last Supper, there's a saying that doesn't appear in Mark and Matthew. Jesus says to the disciples, Now then, you remember at the start I said, Don't take a purse or a bag or a tunic with you. Well, now I'm telling you, take a purse and a bag and a cloak and a sword as well. In other words, Luke's Jesus is saying, you're about to go out on your own into the real world now, and you have to survive. Hold on to your ideals, yes, but also be realistic. You're going to have to compromise. Being radically poor and radically pacifist won't work. So take a purse. You'll need to deal with money. Take a sword. You'll have to deal with violence. You'll have to get your hands dirty. I'll take another story that again you only find in Luke. The parable of the dishonest steward, one of the strangest stories in the gospel. Remember the story? The dishonest steward is the one who fiddles the books when he loses his job so that he can get in with his master's creditors by cutting the amount they owe. The steward is dishonest, and yet, at the end of that story, the master praises him because he's been shrewd and realistic. The punchline of the parable is, Make friends with unrighteous mammon, unrighteous money, while you're on earth, so that in the end, they will let you into heaven. In other words, the lesson of that parable is, yes, money is unrighteous, compromised, rather dirty stuff. But in this life, you can't avoid dealing with it. So at least use it for a good purpose even if to some degree you're bound to be tainted by it. Now, I don't mean, let me emphasize, that Luke has lost his radical ideal. Far from it. After all, it's Luke who gives us the Magnificat, which says that God will put down the mighty and exalt the humble, feed the hungry, and send the rich away empty. It's Luke's Jesus who says, blessed are the poor. Not blessed are the poor in spirit, as in Matthew, but blessed are the poor, full stop. And Luke adds, for good measure, and woe to you who are rich. It's Luke, and only Luke, who gives us that story of the rich man and Lazarus, the beggar at his gate, with its plain threat in the punchline, that the rich are going to hell. And it's Luke who tells us in the book of Acts 
that the early church was a communist institution, a church that held all things in common. And you remember Luke reinforces that with that little story of Ananias and Zechariah who are struck dead on the spot when they try to keep some money back for themselves. And Luke isn't just radical about money. He's radically inclusive, too. Luke is far more pro-women than the other Gospels. It's Luke who gives us the story of Mary and Martha, with its inescapable conclusion that a woman's place is not in the kitchen, but rather doing theology with Jesus. And indeed, in general, women have a far more prominent place in Luke than they do in the other Gospels. Luke is good on race as well. Luke's stories about Gentiles and Samaritans attack racial prejudice. In Matthew and Mark, there is one story where Jesus refers to the Gentiles as dogs, which was the standard Jewish insult against Gentiles. But when Luke tells that same story, again, he leaves that bit about the dogs out. You can imagine that Theophilus might not have liked much being referred to as a dog. Luke is even arguably pro-gay, especially when Luke tells the story of the centurion and the healing of the centurion's beloved servant. Many commentators have pointed out that in Jesus' time, that centurion and his beloved servant would almost certainly have been assumed to be lovers. So, if you want inclusion and political correctness, economic, racial, religious, and sexual, Luke is your man. (laughs) And yet, as I was saying at the start, for all his radical right-on stuff, you can feel the strain of Luke having to face facts. He has to get Theophilus and the Roman powers that be on side. This radical gospel can only be spread by an institutional church. And those two things don't go happily together. How can you have poverty and a purse? How can you be a pacifist with a sword? So Luke really is, I think, an odd mixture. He's an establishment man and a revolutionary all at the same time. Because what I think we are really seeing in Luke's writings is the process of an earlier radical Christianity gradually turning into an institutional Christianity. Luke's work is the work of a revolutionary who is now quietening down into a tolerant, middle-aged, middle-class intellectual, a bit like an aging hippie who finally has to come to terms with a job and a wife and the kids. (laughs) Or perhaps like a fiery, radical, left-wing priest who is eventually neutralized with a cathedral canonry. And the paradox about Luke continues to the very end. 
because there are two traditions about Luke's death which seem to reflect these two sides of him. One tradition says that Luke died peacefully, unmarried, at a ripe old age in Ephesus, which makes him sound like a comfortable clerical bachelor in Brighton. But the other tradition says that Luke was beheaded as a martyr in the persecution under Domitian. Now that, of course, would be rather better because it would show that Luke never did really lose his principles and was willing to stick his neck out, literally, (laughs) when the crunch finally came. But alas, we can never be quite sure which tradition is true. And meanwhile, of course, we have to get on with the same dilemma ourselves. Which side of Luca we most like? The radical Christian wanting to change the world, putting down the mighty from their thrones, championing the poor and the people on the margins? Or the conventional establishment Christian cheerfully compromising with the status quo and the powers that be. Perhaps, like Luke, we are all a bit of both. But which will we be when the crunch comes for us?